Please turn to the book of Revelation, the Revelation of John, and I want to read verses 1 through 6 of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I have never uh, witnessed an autopsy. You ever witnessed? There is a second stanza to that tune. I am not planning on witnessing an autopsy. I suppose that an autopsy, an autopsy is something that the average citizen really doesn't have, you know, the right to witness. It, the Greek origin of the word autopsy means to see with one's own eyes. I believe I, I believe I can get by without seeing with my own eyes an autopsy, a procedure of, the, of dissecting or examining a body to determine the cause of disease or death. The first autopsy was performed in 1315 during the time of the Renaissance when there was this rebirth of interest in the human anatomy. It may surprise you that Leonardo da Vinci performed 30 autopsies in his investigation of the human anatomy and that Michelangelo was more than an artist or a sculptor. He, was, he performed autopsies and did several of them. But really the first autopsy was not performed in the 14th century. It was really performed in the first century. It was not performed on a dead body. It was performed on a church that was filled with the living dead. And it was not performed by da Vinci. It was performed by the first century Christ upon the church at Sardis, the church of the living dead. Every time I read this, I think about the rhyme of the ancient mariner, you know, Poe's magnificent work. Those mariners coming up out of the sea, dead men hoisting sails and manning oars. It is true that 
in Sardis, dead men preached. And dead men sing, sang. And dead men took up the offering and ushered in the people. And dead men prayed. For the coroner's report on the church at Sardis was that they had a name of life, but they were dead. This is a dead church. It might be helpful to um, learn something about the, the Sardians, the people of Sardis. It was a city rich in history. It was, historians say, the first place where coins were minted. It was the first place where money was used as a medium of exchange. In A.D. 19, the city of Sardis was completely destroyed by an earthquake, completely leveled to the ground. That's not unusual. Many cities have had that happen. The amazing thing was that nine years later, that city was completely restored to its original splendor. I mean, in nine years, they resurrected this city from total destruction to its former splendor. It was a city that the name was synonymous with, with decadence, a city of contempt. It was a city known for its loose living, its extravagant immoral living. It was a city of, of partiers. One man said of Sardis, it was a city of voluptuous decadence and of amateur musicians and professional shopkeepers. I mean, it was a swinging city and it had a swinging church, but the church in reality was dead. Now there is a question that demands an answer that just um, erupts from this uh, parchment. And the question is a question that confronts every church in every age, and that is, what makes a church die? Or maybe to, to rephrase that question, to, to put it like this, what are the characteristics of a dead or dying church? I think there are several. You need to hear these. I think a church is dead or dying when it worships the past, when it lives in a former glory, when it gives its testimony concerning well, what happened yesterday. It's always yesterday. And when you have a testimony meeting and the majority of the people get up and they talk about how it used to be, you know that church is worshiping the past. Reminds me of a little ditty that a man wrote memorializing his dog, his dachshund, you know those long weeny dogs? The little ditty goes like this, there was a dachshund once so long it hadn't any notion how long it took to notify his tale of, its, of his emotion. So it happened while his eyes were filled with woe and sadness, his little tail went wagging on because of previous gladness. Now I have a feeling that many churches just keep on wagging because of previous gladness. You ask them, what is happening in this church now? And there is really nothing that they can say that's spiritual about the church in the present. It's always something that happened in the past. I remember preaching a revival in a little country town in West Texas. It was one of those revivals that are, you know, all unique in the sense that wasn't a whole lot of hoopla and all that going on. We didn't hand out any awards or get kids down there for fun or pizza suppers or whatever, just had a revival meeting and the Spirit of the Lord came down on that place. There were scores of adults saved in that revival meeting. When I checked out the last service, this lady came up to me and said, 
You know, I never thought that I would ever see the day when I would be involved in something like this. She said, the only thing that I know about this church that has any semblance of being alive was a fading memory. Worships the past. Secondly, it's a church that worships its farm. Now listen to me very carefully. I, I want to get right here where we are today and in the 20th century. It worships its farm. It continually addresses the structure. The emphasis is upon the farm and the structure. The emphasis is upon how we look rather than what we really are. Now let me see if I can define for you the difference between function and form. Function is a natural or necessary action. Form is the shape that facilitates the action. For example, to sit down is a normal, necessary function. A chair is the shape that facilitates that action. Now to worship is a normal, necessary action. But when we talk about worship, immediately we think of the form, the church, the building. And the only worship that goes on then is what is done in the church building. And it becomes a matter of focusing on the form rather than the function. And what goes on in the building rather than the function itself. For example, Bible teaching or Bible learning is the function. A sermon or a Sunday school class is the form. And so we do our Bible learning, our Bible teaching within the form and nothing else, no, no, no more Bible learning or Bible study goes on except in Sunday school or when we come and hear a sermon and we place the emphasis on the form rather than the function. It's true. Some of you remember reading Huckleberry Finn, uh, Mark Twain's famous book. You remember that story in there where Uncle Tom had this guy, you know, this uh, runaway slave. He'd caught him and he was, had him up in one of his cabins. You remember that story? You English teachers do. And, and this old guy was, was chained to a bed up in one of uh, uh, Tom Sawyer's uncle's cabins. And so Huckleberry, Huck and Tom devised this plot to, to, to free him, to spring him, to rescue him. And as they got to working on a plot, I mean, this could be the most sensational escape trick ever pulled. They, they just, their mind went wild. It might take years, but when they finished, this was going to go down in history as a major, major event. So while they were hatching up the plot, the old guy was chained up there in this bed, starving to death. And it seemed like the the rescue opera operation became more important than the person being rescued. Does that sound familiar? So that where we place our emphasis and where we place our money when a church is dying is on the form rather than the function. Third, it gets worse. A church is on its way to death when the love of tradition 
becomes more important than a love for Christ or for others. Youth, let me just insert youth right there. Where the love of tradition becomes more important than the love of Christ or youth. I overheard two ministers talking one day. And one of them said, I, heard, I know you used to have a tremendous bus ministry where you bust in all these people. He said, you don't have this bus ministry anymore. What happened? He said, well, you know, we got all these bus children and we brought them into church and they nearly destroyed our building. He said, not only did they nearly destroy our building, they almost wrecked our vehicles on the way down to the building. And he said, quote, we decided that if they couldn't come to our church building and act right, they'd have to go somewhere else. And so a person came up to me one time and said, you know, I just know what's happening to the young people of our time. I mean, have you ever been into any of our Sunday school classes and see how young people, how kids act in our Sunday school class? Said, it's an absolute disgrace and shame. It's terrible, tragedy. I said, yes, but there is one greater tragedy than that, and that is to go into a Sunday school room and not find any there. And so we place the emphasis upon the tradition rather than upon Christ or the people. Fourth, a church dies when it becomes inflexible, when it refuses to change. Joel Barker has a great book entitled Discovering, of the, Discovering the Future, and he talks about the, the invention of the quartz watch, the electric watch, and he by the way, I have one. He, 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 he says that in 1940s, the Swiss watch makers, these watches with the gears, and, 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 and you wind them up and have springs and that kind of thing. Swiss watch makers had 90% of the watch market in the world. By the 60s, the Swiss watch companies had 60% of the watch market of the world. But in the 80s, less than 10. The reason is because of the discovery or the invention of the electronic watch. Now the amazing thing about that is, is that the Swiss invented the course watch, the electronic watch. But you can't really have a watch, can you? I mean, when they presented this, the, the, the research team, when they presented it to the, to the manufacturer, you can't have a watch that doesn't have springs and and wheels and gadgets. And Fortune magazine came out with this statement, the main villain proved to be the inflexibility of Swiss watchmakers. They simply refused to adjust to one of the biggest technological changes in the history of timekeeping, the development of the electronic watch. Swiss companies were so tied to traditional technology that they couldn't or wouldn't see the opportunity offered by the electronic revolution. Let me tell you something, folks. This is a different world than I grew up in. I used to look forward to August, the first two weeks in August. Everybody shut down and we had revivals. You just don't do that anymore. And a church that is not open to change, it's not flexible to innovation, is a church dying? Number five, I'll hurry. A church dies when it loses its evangelistic and mission fervor. Do you know what would happen if every single adult who was in Sunday school this morning 
just won one person to Christ this next year, our baptisms would increase a thousand percent. Just one person to Christ. I'm talking to people this morning who have been members of this church for a lifetime, have never won one single person to Christ. Now we need to die if we lose our evangelistic mission fervor because a church that does not take the gospel into its world has no reason to exist and it has no right to preach. What causes a church to die? These are the things. But there is an observation that deserves attention. Not only a question that demands an answer, there's an observation that deserves attention. The observation is this, is that Christ makes five commandments to a dying church, five commands. Now, let me help you with a little Bible study this morning. If you've got a pencil, you just circle five imperatives in, chap- in verse 3, verses 2 and 3. Because these are the commands that He gives to this dying church. Wake up, strengthen the things that remain. Verse 3, remember what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. Five commands. Now, for those of you who are interested in uh, Greek word studies, the first four commands are in the present tense. It suggests continuous action. Continuous action means keep on doing it. And the fifth one, repent, is in the aorist tense, and it means point of time, once and for all, do it. All right, let me break these down. Wake up. Wake up. Parents, wake up and see what is happening in your home. Not long ago in Ridgecrest, Glorietta, and all the major Southern Baptist um, summer camps and, and summer institutions where people go for these retreats, they in, interviewed young people and they asked them some basic questions. Now all of these young people, you would suppose, because they're at Glorietta and Ridgecrest and all these kinds of things, Falls Creek, whatever, that they would be from religious backgrounds, religious homes. They, they were. The statistics they found were absolutely astounding. 22% of these kids um, surveyed said they had witnessed violence in their own home. 19% of them had already considered seriously suicide. 60% of these kids had experimented with alcohol by the age of 13 and by the age of 13, 19%, 27% of them had experimented with drugs. 30% of them carried weapons to school and 9% of them had been victims of sexual violence. From the best Southern Baptist homes, is it time to wake up or not? Is it time to wake up, citizen? I mean, do you really want to go on living in a democracy that has to swallow what we have to swallow? But before you get too excited about waking up, let me, let me remind you that we have 
Sunday school classes of young people that don't have teachers. And we own our knees begging adults to go to Falls Creek. Is this really, does this really parallel any kind of legitimate concern? Does it really reflect any kind of legitimate concern? It's time to wake up. And so Bob Dylan has written that song. It's on his album Soul Train Coming. It's time to wake up. He said, we got adulterers in churches, pornography in schools. You got gangsters. Um, how does that go? Got gangsters in power and lawbreakers making rules. When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up? When am I going to wake up? One day Napoleon took his finger and he drew a circle around a large mass, land mass, on a map on the wall. And he put his finger in that circle and said, That, my friend, is a sleeping giant. Don't anybody wake her up or she will shake the world. He was pointing at China. Well, we all know China has stirred from its slumber and has shaken and is shaking the world. It's time for the church of God, the sleeping giant. It's time for us as God's people to wake up. He said, secondly, strengthen what remains. Now that's applicable to a corporate group. It's applicable to the church for it means this, that Within every church there is a remnant, there is a small group of people. Now we major on the people who are not here. I think we need to start majoring, majoring on the people who are, and you strengthen the remnant. It's applicable to us individually. It means it's never too late to start serving God. It's never too late to be involved in some creative ministry. So you have reached an age where you're not as active physically as you used to be or mentally as you used to be. There is still something for you to do. Strengthen what remains. Find out where you fit in the plan of God. You're not too old to begin. Then he said... And remember, what you have received, he divides it into two, what you have received and what you have heard. Now, what have you received? I was sitting in my uh, desk doing a little meditation about that. I, we've received eternal life, the, gifts, the gift of God. We've received the glorious good news of the gospel proclaiming freedom and redemption. We have received forgiveness of sin. I, I've, my sin has been forgiven. We have, been, we have received security, a, a home in heaven. We have received spiritual gift. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me, we have received the person of Jesus Christ. I saw a person not long ago and I, I knew I knew I ought to know that person but I couldn't for the life of me think who it was. And that person came up to me, and I thought, oh no, here it comes. And they said, hello, Gerald, good to see you, buddy. Good to see you, son. How you doing? Fine, great, wonderful. Who is this? <laughs> and they said that most embarrassing word, you don't know me, do you? And I said, well, your face, <laughs> your face looks familiar. But I, you know, I, I meet so many people, I say, well, come to find out it was somebody I ought to know. 
Doesn't his voice sound familiar? You've heard it before, can't figure out where it comes from. And I think across the, the timeline, our Lord leans down into our face and says, Hey, don't you remember me? Don't you remember me? I mean, we used to walk together. We used to talk together. We used to fellowship. You, you remember my voice, don't you? Does it sound familiar? Doesn't it sound like something you heard somewhere in the past? You've heard, you've heard of me, haven't you? I think that might be what he's saying. And then he said, you need to remember what you've heard. Now, I won't do this, but I've, I'm tempted. If I handed out a sheet of paper this morning and I ask you to write down on that sheet of paper two things by way of application you remember from the sermon three weeks ago, I have a feeling most of us in this auditorium wouldn't even remember the sermon. And then he said, I want you to keep it. Now, it's one thing to hear and to receive. It's another thing. The word keep there means to apply it, to take it and apply it. I, I'm not so distressed this morning that you don't remember my sermon. Sometimes I have to look back to see what I preached last week. But, but, but I, I am a little bit concerned about the fact that we go to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And we go to Falls Creek and we go to retreats and we listen to tapes and we watch pe preachers on, on television and cannot for the life of us name one thing that we've applied from what we've heard. Can you sit down today and write out one difference, two differences that have you've made in your life in the last 12 months because of your exposure to the gospel? I want you to turn to the book of Ezekiel. Now, I know it's time is about to leave us, so I'll be through in time. I just want you to turn to that book. Ezekiel is that Old Testament prophecy over by Daniel. It's in the middle, kind of in the middle of the Bible, right in Ezekiel. Everybody turn with me, would you? Ezekiel 33. And I want to read verse, beginning verse 23 of chapter 33. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, they who live in these waste places in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, yet he possessed the land. So to us who are, are many, the land has been given as a possession. This is our land because we're the children of Abraham. That's what he's saying, what they're saying. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord, As I live, no, thus says the Lord, you eat meat with blood in it. God told you in Deuteronomy that you are not to eat meat with blood in it. You did it. You lift up your eyes to idols. God told you to have no other idols, have no idols, have no other gods but me. But you did, you had idols. And you shed blood and, and you... Um, defile your neighbor's wife. You, you have the Ten Commandments, but you don't give any consideration to the Ten Commandments. He says, Thus says the Lord to them, 
As I live, surely those who are in waste places will fall by the sword. You've disobeyed God, now you're going to pay for it. Now, skip down to verse 30. But as for you, Ezekiel, son of man, you fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. Come on, folks, down to the church. I want you to hear our preacher. That's what they're saying. And they come to you as people come. And they sit before you as my people and hear your words. But they do not do them, for they they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. What he's saying is this. Boy, they're saying a lot of good things about you, Ezekiel. They're inviting everybody to come hear you. And the church is packed when you preach. But it's just going in one ear and out the other. And God says, what you ever heard apply. And then in one point of time action, he says, repent. Now it's interesting that that word repent there is a word that means to have a change of mind. It it means to decide with your mind. It has nothing to do with feelings. It has to do with the decision of the will, the mind. He said, I want you to make up your mind that it's not going to go on like this any longer. Yogi Berra, who's often quoted He's the guy who said, when somebody asked him where there was a good restaurant in New York City, he said, well, you know, that restaurant down there on 5th and whatever, he said, nobody goes there anymore, it's too crowded. Think about that a little bit. Nobody eats there anymore, it's too crowded. He said one time about baseball, he said, baseball is 90% mental and the other 50% physical. Now, I'm telling you that repentance is 90% mental. It's when a person decides and he draws a line in the dust of his life and he says, from now on, my life is going to be different. And that leads me to the final thought, if you'll give me that five minutes, please. And that is a remedy that determines appropriation. How do you stay alive? How does a church maintain its life? I think there are three answers to that question. One, it begins to take God seriously. And he says, if you don't begin to do what I've said, if you don't repent, I'm going to come quickly like a thief. 700 years before this letter was written, Croesus the king of Sardis had a fortress upon the top of this high mountain. And Cyrus of Persia was trying to attack Sardis and get across the the, the Hermas Valley in his conquest of the world. But he had to conquer Sardis first. But they couldn't get by that high fortress high up in the mountain. And so Cyrus told his men, I will award anybody with great prize if they can find a way to, to climb and scale that high cliff and get that fortress down. Two weeks passed and a man was sitting watching one night and a, and a guard up at, the, up at the top of the tower dropped his helmet and it started t- tumbling down the, the mountain. 
And it lodged there about halfway down. And this man crawled down the mountain, got his helmet, and started back and got back up to the fortress. And the, and the enemy soldier watching knew that there had to be a crevice or something like a ladder there that he got back up the mountain on. So the next night, in the middle of the night, they slipped up that place where he had watched. And because the Sardians fought, they would never, ever reach them. They were all asleep, and they came in, swarmed over them, and destroyed Sardis. That's the idea here, is that if some way, somehow, we don't wake up, strengthen the things that remain, repent, that He comes like a thief, and it's too late. How do you stay alive? By taking God seriously. Secondly, by radical thinking. Radical thinking. The most radical thinker who has ever lived is Jesus Christ. Radical thinking. Third, I'll just touch it. By making changes in the area of doing what you have never done before of making changes in the area, of beginning to do what you've never done before. I've never tithed. I begin to... Th Radical thinking. God will provide. I'll start doing it. I have never taught. I will do it. I have never witnessed to anybody. Radical thinking. I can't do that. Radical thinking. I make the change to begin to do what I have never done before. If everybody in this congregation, just who hears my voice this morning, will begin to do radical thinking, make changes in the area of doing those things they've never done before, this world would be changed beginning here. On October the 12th, 1972, a small plane from the uh, Uruguayan Airlines, Uruguay, from Uruguay, Uruguayan Airlines, took off, headed for Chile. They had 46 passengers aboard. They were all members of an amateur rugby team, and they were headed to Chile, Santiago, for a match. The first day out in this small plane, they were forced down by bad weather. The next morning they got up and they thought we can make it. At 3.21 in the afternoon, as they began to approach Santiago, they radioed the radio tower for permission to land. And they began to cross the pass in those mountains that surround Santiago, covered with snow. And they were told to lower their descent to 15,000 feet. One minute later, when the control tower sought to make contact with the airline, the plane, no contact. It had gone down in the mountains. And because it was white, it just was engulfed in the snow and couldn't be detected. They couldn't find it. Ten weeks later, an old peasant was out tending his sheep, his cattle, and he looked across a ravine and he saw two men, bearded and gaunt, coming up to the edge of the ravine. And they were motioning wildly, and one of them was down on his knees, entreating as in prayer. He thought they were crazy. He, he was afraid they were terrorists, so he fled. He left. The next day he came back, and they were still there. He took a pen and wrapped it around it some paper and tied a handkerchief around it and threw it across the ravine. One of those men got the paper, 
was so weak he could hardly write, but he wrote, I'm from a plain that's gone down in the mountains. I'm from Uruguay. Twenty-six men and women died. Nineteen survived. The ones who survived, survived. By practicing cannibalism, they ate the flesh of their colleagues. The church was incensed, and they brought these people to trial. And a man stood up, and with tears streaming down his face, he said, the only, that's the only way we could live. And that story was put in a book and recently was made into a movie that was shown in Sherman Denison entitled simply Alive. Now without trying to be melodramatic, at the age of mid-fifties. I'm growing in my conviction that we are going, if we are going to survive as a people of God, as a church, as a nation, we're going to have to begin to take God more seriously. We're going to begin to, we're going to need to begin to do some radical thinking and we're going to need to begin to change the way we do some things to begin to do those things like we've never done before. Now, the ball is in our court. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray your conviction upon our heart today, not feelings of guilt, conjured up by minister, but conviction by the Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name for His sake. There are free invitations this morning. I invite you to come today to receive Christ as your personal Savior. If you've, let's say you were saved in Bible school and you lifted your hand and prayed the prayer. You want to come this morning and come forward and let us Know about it as a church. It's called Public Profession of Faith. We'll be baptized. We're having baptism tonight. I'll meet with you at 6 or after. So if you accepted Christ, you need to come forward publicly or at, at children's camp or in the privacy of your own home. Or maybe you need to come this morning as a Christian, a believer, to reunite, to unite with this fellowship, this church. There's an urgency about these days. Or perhaps as a Christian who needs to wake up, the alarm's going off. To recommit yourself to radical thinking and radical doing, radical living. Status quo will not get it. Business as usual, forget it. Radical thinking and radical living. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.